Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. God's word is not just a word, the word of life, and we're to hold it fast. And uh, as we do, not only will we be blessed and others around us, but he will be glorified. Before we turn our attention to that word this morning, let's confess our faith. And I had initially uh, intended, as you'll see, to use the Apostles' Creed before we come to the Lord's table. But uh, in talking to Dr. Robertson about his text and topic, it seemed that question 26 of our shorter catechism would be an appropriate confession to use. So please turn in the back of your hymnals to page 871. 871, and this is the section that is uh, expounding or elaborating on the three offices of Christ as our Redeemer, prophet, priest, and king, and we're using question 26. Christians, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. I'm not going to say anything about that. I trust Dr. Robertson will uh, do that in just a minute. Uh, Now we want to turn our attention to his text for this morning, Psalm 23. And I I told Dr. Robertson I'd planned not to say much by way of introduction, but it's hard not to say at least uh, something. We often refer to him as the father of our congregation because it was uh, during his ministry at Wallace uh, Memorial Presbyterian Church at that time located in Hyattsville and the result of his vision that uh, our church uh, was planted. And um, as I've mentioned to you and things I've said and written, Dr. Robertson, and it's not an exaggeration to say is a world-renowned scholar, teacher, and writer. Uh, Perhaps his best-known work is The Christ of the Covenants, which is uh, used, I think, in all the Reformed seminaries and I think probably in others that aren't necessarily as Reformed. It was to be the uh, beginning of a trilogy. He's written the second part, The Christ of the Prophets. The third installment was to be The Christ of the Psalms, but along the way he was telling us he intended to write about a 20 or 30 page introduction that's turned into his most recent book, The Flow of the Psalms. And so he's uh, spent lots of time studying the Psalms. He'll tell us a little bit about that later, but that gives you some of his background as he uh, comes to us in just a moment to uh, uh, preach on this um, justly uh, well-known and well-loved part of God's Word. As you see, it's a Psalm of David. Let me ask you to stand so that we can pray for the Lord's blessing, and then we'll read and hear his word. Again, our Father, we thank you that your word incarnate in our Lord Jesus was and continues to be the word of life. And we thank you that your word given to us in Holy Scripture by 
David and the other prophets and apostles, the other, all the men that were carried along by your spirit as they wrote, continues to be the word of life. And yet we acknowledge that that life can be ours only through the ministry of your gracious spirit. And yet we know you delight to send him to minister in that way. Uh, and so now in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would uh, not only uh, bless us as we read and hear, but our dear father and brother as he preaches from this portion of your holy word for the glory and praise and honor of our great chief and good shepherd, we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear God's word this morning beginning in Psalm 23 and verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beloved, this is the word of God. Amen. Please be seated. Shall I move? What a joy it is to see how the Lord has worked in this congregation, and we praise the Lord for the faithfulness of your pastor to have led you all of these years and to gather together this people of the Lord. I bring you greetings from your African brothers and sisters in Uganda. They love you not having seen you. We, we did bring four of them over. They, they have started on a special project. You know, the, the singing in Africa in the churches, generally speaking, is on the lowest possible imaginable level. The, the worst of the Western repetitive songs are, are what they have captured. And this group is going into the villages and saying, give us one of your local tunes. And then they will say, well now that would fit Psalm 34. And so they are composing psalms for the congregations in Africa to sing rather than just these meaningless words. There, there's an old Jewish saying, as a man sings, so is he. And if a church sings little baby songs all their lives, they're going to stay infants. But if they sing the richness of the Psalms, as you have just done, then they are going to be enriched in their own spiritual lives. So we brought four of these graduates of African Bible University. Over three were graduates of our university, and we sang at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. That is, they sang. I did not sing. And 
then uh, I would teach the psalms and we went to about a dozen churches and they would sing the psalms and I would teach a little bit on the psalms and the Lord blessed us greatly. But I would ask you to be in prayer for the churches of, of Africa. They are many and they are young and they need your prayers that they may grow in maturity and faith and in the life that they would live. Now this morning we are looking at that most familiar perhaps and perhaps most beloved of all the Psalms of the Old Testament, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Is there any passage of scripture that is not as well known or better known than this particular psalm? Yet if we consider this psalm in its context, then we may find even greater riches here. Context? Is there a psalm in context? Is it possible to interpret a a psalm in the context of the psalms that are surrounding it? Is there any structure within the book of Psalms that would enrich us in our understanding? Well, obviously I'm expecting you to say, well, yes, there must be, or he wouldn't be asking these questions. (laughs) Well, as a matter of fact, yes, there is. And so this morning we're going to look first at the context of Psalm 23, which you most likely, if you're like all other people for the past 2,000 years, as a matter of fact, you don't read the Psalms in context. You, you read each one as its own little, little jewel. And, but if you see it in context, Psalm 23, you will see that Christ, your shepherd king, tenderly cares for all your needs through the whole of your life. Christ is not just the shepherd. He is your shepherd king. He is the sovereign as your shepherd. And he tenderly leads you in providing the needs that you have through all your life. That is the message of Psalm 23. Now let's look then, first of all, at the context, then we'll look at the content, and then a little conclusion. First of all, the context of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 comes in the midst of seven, excuse me, five kingship psalms. Five kingship psalms. Psalms 20 and 21 speak of Messiah's kingship, and you can take your time and read them this afternoon, if you will, and notice the references to the victory that Messiah is first of all prayed for, and then the victories that he accomplishes. This is the messianic king that is struggling against his enemies to establish the messianic kingdom of righteousness and peace. Does that mean anything us today with a five to four decision of the Supreme Court of this country? We are struggling, are we not, to establish righteousness and peace rather than trying to rewrite the very orders of creation itself. So Psalms 20 and 21 deal with messianic kingships. Psalms 23 and 24 deal with divine kingship. With God's kingship, you may be familiar with those questions that in Psalm 24, Who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? Well, 
The king of glory is the king of Psalm 23. He who is the shepherd of his people. And in the middle of these two psalms of messianic kingship, two psalms of divine kingship, Psalm 22 combines these two kingships. You are familiar with the beginning of Psalm 22? That psalm that Jesus quoted when he was on the cross suffering, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is the ultimate struggle of the messianic king to establish his kingship. But have you read to the end of Psalm 22? We are so taken up with the wonders of the anticipations, the predictions by a thousand years of how Christ would suffer on the cross, how they even cast lots for his garments and mocked him on the cross, that we don't read to the end of this psalm. Notice Psalm 22, verse 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down to him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So you see, in Psalm 22, we have the combination of messianic kingship, and he doesn't leave him on the cross. He ends up triumphing over death in his resurrection, as Psalm 22 also anticipates, but then it moves into an exclamation that declares the sovereignty of God over all the nations of the world. So you see a context now? Five kingship psalms. Did they happen to just come together like this? There was no references to Messiah kingship all the way back until Psalms 1 and 2 that talk about the Messianic king. And all of a sudden, you have five kingship psalms in a grouping. This is, not the f- this is the first, but not the last, of groupings of Messianic kingships and divine kingships joined together. So Psalms 20 and 21 are Messiah's kingship, 23 and 24 are God's kingship, and 22 combines those kingships, which was the great goal of the Messianic king. You remember how David insisted that the Ark of the Covenant be brought up to Mount Zion where his throne was established. Why was he so concerned to bring that Ark of the Covenant? Well, because the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the throne of God on earth. And David would not be satisfied until God's throne was right beside his throne. So there would be a unity of the Messiah's kingship with God's kingship. And you know, do you not, how that ultimately is realized in redemptive history when our Lord Jesus Christ is understood to be God, who is also Messiah, the one king, the divine king, the Messiah king. And so when you read Psalm 23... Read it in context. Read it in the context of the Lord is your shepherd king who is sovereign over all the nations of the world who will rule them with a rod of iron and see that what the nations do is what his will has determined. Don't ever think that economic powers, political powers, judicial powers, religious powers, Military powers will overthrow the kingship 
of your tender shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, has been, and forever shall be King of kings and Lord of lords. Now that's the context. Now look at the content of Psalm 23 and read it a little more freshly in terms of the context that we've noted. What is the content? First of all, Yahweh is the word that is used of the Lord. Yahweh is my shepherd. What does that mean? Well, it means that it is a covenant Lord who has been king over all the nations, who has committed himself by the blood of the covenant to be faithful to you even unto death. This morning we shall celebrate the shedding of the blood, the breaking of the body, as symbols of the sacrifice that Yahweh has made for his people. And if God has not withheld from you his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, how can he withhold from you anything that is for your good? He, as a matter of fact, will not need so. But this phrase, the Lord, Yahweh is my shepherd, doesn't occur for the first time in Psalm 23. It's not in Psalm 23 that David, for the first time, conceives of God as a shepherd. Where is the first time? A thousand years before David. A thousand years before David, God is known and described as the shepherd of his people. If you want to look in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48, where Jacob is pronouncing his blessing over his son Joseph, this is what the scripture says. Genesis 48, verse 15. Then Jacob blessed Joseph, his son, and said, May the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. You pray for your children? I pray many times for my children. Do you pray regularly for your children? Do you pray that as God has been your shepherd all your life, that he will be the shepherd of your children? and your children's children, and your children's children's children. If anyone needed a shepherd king, <laughs> it was indeed Jacob. Can you imagine being married, as we had a wonderful marriage, but I saw in the newspaper in, in Uganda not too long ago that one man was marrying two sisters simultaneously. And the mother of the two sisters was there very happily joining them in this celebration. Can you imagine what it would be like to be married to two sisters? There was a case again in the Uganda newspaper that reported that, that this woman had thrown ash or acid into the face of the other wife. And the man says, I don't understand this. I love them both equally. Why should there be any jealousy? What a crazy man. Do you really think you can love two women equally? It's impossible. It's impossible. And here's Jacob married to two sisters who are like this all the time. Can you imagine? 
He needs a shepherd. In terms of the business world, he, he thought it'd be a good deal to work with his, with his father-in-law, right? Well, he got cheated over and over and over again, right? How would you like to be in business and be cheated by your father-in-law over and over again? Well, he needs a shepherd. You remember how Jacob got along with his twin brother Esau? The stronger one, the more powerful one, the one with a recruitment of soldiers alongside him? He trembled because of his brother, and he was constantly threatened by, for his life by his brother. How would you like to spend the majority of your life sojourning in a foreign country? That's Jacob. Well, he needed a shepherd, did he not? He needed a sovereign king. And on top of it all, Jacob just had that, that great capacity to make trouble for himself. You have that trouble sometimes? Why did you stick your nose into that? It didn't, wasn't your business at all, but now you're in big trouble because you made it for yourself. Oh, yes. The psalmist at one point says, Lord, please don't remember the sins of my youth. Anyone pray that prayer? What stupidity. What did I do those four years in college? I spent all my time getting drunk and playing athletics and not paying any attention to my studies. Well, you need a shepherd, one who is going to truly care for you in the tenderest possible way. David, the author of this psalm, Psalm 23, was constantly in trouble himself, within and without, sinning by his lust that he could not control, guilty of murder. What is he thinking, this man who had everything that God had given him? Now, in this regard, it's critical that you say, not just the Lord is a, is a great shepherd. That's not enough. What have you got to say? That little, very important word? The Lord is my shepherd. It's not enough to just think about how great God was as a shepherd to Jacob and to David. You must... If that really isn't your situation, then be honest. And when you read this, this psalm, just say, the Lord is shepherd. Don't say, the Lord is my shepherd. And how can you have the audacity to say, the Lord is my shepherd? The Lord is going to care for me with tenderness and with the force and power that the king of the universe has. Is the king of the universe really going to care for you? Well, the only way you can convince yourself and be assured that this is really going to happen for you is to remember our Lord Jesus Christ. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, if God has sent his own son and if Jesus has willingly laid down his life, experienced the judgment of God, which is hell itself, on behalf of you, how can he withhold from you anything that is good? He is not going to do so, is he? So you can confidently say, you can claim it for yourself. The Lord, Yahweh, the shepherd king, is my shepherd. If you have not done that, 
If you have just gone through all the motions of worshiping and coming to church for all these years and never truly extended your faith to claim for yourself what scripture and the good gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ brings you, then do it right now. You you don't have to move anywhere. You don't have to say anything. You just communicate with God and say, yes, Lord, I claim you as my shepherd. And I claim you all my life. I'm a young person right now. I'm an old person right now. And I need you as my shepherd king. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in pastures of tender grass. I'm not a shepherd nor the father of a shepherd. I don't know anything about the habits of sheep. I even went onto the internet to try to find out with a question, when do sheep lie down? And they didn't give me the answer I was looking for, so I think they must not have the the right information in front of them. When does a sheep lie down? Well, I learned that sheep do not lie down whenever they're threatened. If there is a stranger that is approaching them, they will not lie down. If there's a thunderstorm approaching, they will not lie down. If there's any reason that would make them fearful, they will not lie down. So it's in a context of safety and security that sheep lie down. But these are sheep that are lying down in pastures, plural. You know, no fences here, not greener on the other side. You've got pastures of green, tender grass. Why in the world would a sheep lie down when he's got tender grass? What would you say? Well, the only conclusion I could reach was when they're full, when they're satisfied, when they can't eat any more. They've got everything. They've eaten all this green grass and all these various pastures that are available to them so that they're stuffed. And so they lie down. That's when they lie down. Now, look at the concluding verses of Psalm 22 and you can see how Yahweh as your shepherd king causes you to prosper. What is the one thing, the one concrete thing that Yahweh does as king for his people according to the final verses of of Psalm 22, verse 26, the poor of the earth, they will eat and be satisfied. Is that not an anticipation, something that links Psalm 22 with Psalm 23? And verse 29, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. God doesn't object to your feasting. We had a feast yesterday at the wedding. And I didn't have any qualms, any guilty conscience about feasting. When God lays a table of feasting before you, what do you do? Well, you, f- you feast. And that's what your good shepherd does. He doesn't want you to just go through life just barely making it. There are many times that he will make you have a feast. And very interestingly, I have seen, and you have probably seen also many times, the poor seem to enjoy feasts more than the rich. The rich have it all the time, but when the poor have a feast, they really have a feast. And in Uganda, you've got to have at least five starches to have a feast. Five starches! That's what they call food. Everything else is relish. (laughs) But when you get potatoes and rice and sweet potatoes and matoki and ensema, ah, now you've got a feast. Okay? That's for the poor. Starches, they're cheap. And they eat and 
I can't believe the pile of food that they can eat because they enjoy the food that God has provided for them. Now, as your good shepherd, he wants you to feast. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Is that your testimony? That's my testimony. All my life I have seen God faithfully provide, doing exceeding abundantly above all that I could ask or think. He leads me beside restful, peaceful waters. This good shepherd leads his sheep away from the rushing waters where they might wade in with their wool and get full of water and drown. No, he leads to restful waters. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. So you can be still, even if you've lost your wife and your daughters in a tragic boat accident. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Instead, he leads us beside the still waters. He directs me in well-marked ways of righteousness for the sake of his name. Is it not good for us always to remember that first catechism question? What is the chief end for man anyway? Why is it that you exist? Why is it that you go from day to day? The chief end of man, the reason that man exists, is not for his own self-gratification. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He directs me in well-marked ways of righteousness for the sake of his name. God created his people, you in particular, to be my people for my renown, my praise, and my honor, says Jeremiah. He is king. He is the king of kings. And a king cannot function properly if he does not have a certain amount of honor. And if God is going to be honored among the nations, we who are his people must give him the honor he deserves. To be sure, says the psalmist, I may walk in a valley with shadows as deep as death, but I will fear no evil. You and I may not walk in shadows as deep as some Christians who have gone before us, there was a man named John Barrows who was a nonconformist. They put him in prison. For what? Because he would not follow the Book of Common Worship. He felt God's people should be free to express themselves, not bound by certain words in a particular book, and that's all that they could say in church. No, you must be free to preach the Word of God as you find it. So for six years, he was down in a dirty dungeon without any straw to lie down in, living in his own filth for six years. Can you imagine? It may begin to happen to us as Christians, and even in this society in a few years, we just saw one woman put in prison because she refused to contradict the orders of God's creation in her responsible position. She was in jail here in the United States of America because of religious convictions that are true to the word of God. It can happen here. It can happen very soon. And we need to be prepared. But John Barrows, of all things, the ironical thing is one of the men who was chiefly responsible for the translation of the King James Bible come, came down and visited him occasionally and said, oh, 
John, I, I, I would love to exchange places with you. I have all these busy things I have to do, and, and you're right down here, and you can think about God all day long. And John Barrow says, Methinks me you think of this hypothetically, not in terms of real experience. After six years, he was let out, and he was martyred, and so he died. But he died strong in his faith, God the shepherd preserving him. And you can be assured of the reward that he has received from the hands of that good shepherd for eternity. Christ has not removed death, but he has removed the sting of death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Yes. You you can hear a testimony of your pastor's wife about her mother's passing over. All the families gathered there, and she lingers on, and she says, I'm really sorry to inconvenience all you. I'm sorry this is taking so long for me to die. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) Uh, And when someone comes and she feels they need a rebuke, she just says what she wants to say. And she says, this is more fun dying because I can say what I want to say. (laughs) Now, that's a new view of death, isn't it? Death, where is your sting? He hasn't removed death but he's removed the sting of death, right? He hasn't removed the the shadows of life. Yea, though I walk through the shadows of the valley of death itself, the shadows are there. But he's removed the terror of the shadows. The shadows will always be there because this is a fallen world, but he's removed the terror of the shadows. And now he says, why? For you are with me. For you are with me. Notice how there's been a change. Been talking about God in the third person. He leads, he guides, he shepherds, he protects. But now suddenly the Hebrew word is strong there. Ata! You are the one who leads me. I'm close to you. And therefore... There's no shadow that frightens me. There's no death that terrifies me. For you are with me. Is that your testimony? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We don't often think of a rod as something that comforts. And as a matter of fact, the Messiah's rod is is recognized or described as a rod of iron. You will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He dashes them to pieces like pottery. Later in Psalm 110, speaking of the Messiah, Yahweh will extend your mighty rod from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. And you can see that in history, can you not? Look at Nazi Germany. Look at Mussolini, Stalin, Chairman Mao. Where are they now? They've all been beaten down by God's rod of iron, by the shepherd's rod. But for God's own people, this same rod becomes a rod of comfort. Your rod, it comforts me. Just a tender little tap on the shoulder. Just a temple, simple little go this way, a little nudging. When you hear the rustling of the leaves, then you know it's time to move because the Spirit is moving. The rod of God. Now, 
in, in the South, you know what a comforter is, don't you? A comforter? Did your grandmother hand you down a comforter? You know what a comforter is? You, you're tired at the end of the day and you come and sit on the sofa and then you put your feet up on the sofa and you lean back a little bit and it's kind of cool. But there is that hand-knitted comforter. And you pull that comforter over you and it takes away the chill. You're going to have the chilling moments of life. But God has provided a comforter. And this comforter is not the rod of iron. The figure is changed now. God says through Jesus, I'm going to send you another comforter. Not a rod, but a person who is inside you, who can minister to you in ways that a rod could never do. There's something fresh and new about the comfort of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his words, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good will to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Whatever seems to be developing on the horizons of your life, do not be afraid, little flock. He recognizes that you're you're little sheep. You don't have any control of this world and its powers here. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good will to give you the kingdom. You will share with him in this life and in that which is to come, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You lay a banquet before me in the very presence of my foes. Can you imagine Israel encamped on the plains of Jordan beneath Jericho's fortifications? You know, Jericho was a strong fortress because it was there to defend the land against any invaders that might come from the deserts of the east, and it was there to stop them. And here's Israel, they go across the flooded Jordan, the waters closed behind them so there's no escape, and all these menacing soldiers of Jericho are leaning over the walls, menacing, threatening them, waiting till nightfall when they can come down on them with all their arms. And what do the children of Israel do? Well, they debilitate all their males. They circumcise all their males, which means they don't have the capacity to fight. And then God stops the manna. They've been feeding every day on the manna for 40 years, and now there's no manna. So what are they going to do? For the first time, they gather the fresh fruits of Canaan, and they have a feast. And they're the enemies looking down upon them. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. It is God's promise as your good shepherd that he will care for you. You will have enemies, enemies at work who will cut you behind your back. You will have enemies at school that talk about you and ostracize you and keep you away from all social context. You will have enemies at your neighborhood and they will take out their snow plow and throw all sorts of stuff over in your, your garden and, and you have to bear with it. You will have your enemies. This nation is setting itself against the Lord and against his Christ. And it is going to be 
our enemy in many ways. But in the presence of my foes, you make a feast. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The word, interestingly, is not anoint my head. It says, you make fat my head with oil. You make fat my head with oil. You know, when, when I go back to Uganda, and if I can show just a little paunch, they will say, ah, oh, you're looking so good. <laughs> you're looking so good. Well, in the land of Slim, in the land in which so many people are dying from AIDS, you can understand why they appreciate a little bit fat on someone. Well, you make fat my head with oil. You just don't give just a few drippings, but you anoint my head with oil. Excessiveness, superabundance. As Psalm 22 says, the poor will eat and be satisfied. The founding president of Reformed Theological Seminary, the Reverend Sam Patterson, exegeted the, the benediction of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. You know that verse? Now unto him that is able to do what you ask. Isn't that amazing? God can do what you ask. God is able to do above what you ask. Beyond what you ask and God can do it. Now unto him that is able to do abundantly above what you ask. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding, abundantly, above what you ask. Not through yet. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding, abundantly, above all that you ask. Is that enough? It's not enough yet. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding, abundantly, above. All that you ask or even think. That's your God. That's your shepherd. Your good shepherd. Your shepherd king. Think of him in the context of the one who rules over the nations. And you can believe. Finally in verse 6. Surely, only, I confidently affirm. Goodness, it's an exclusive word here. Only goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You know of that poem written by a Roman Catholic, Francis Thompson, the hound of heaven. He pursued me down the days and down the years. God pursuing you so he can finally catch up with you and bless you. You're running from him, but he's pursuing you, and he's not going to stop until he catches you and pours out his blessings on you. And that's true for all the days of my life. Not some of the days, not on occasional days, but each and every day of my life. If we can just see it, if we can just take off the blinders and see in full context what God is doing for us. You know, our problem is not so much that God is not blessing us. Our problem is that we put blinders on and we only see the narrow little problems that we have and don't see them in the broader context of all that God is doing for us, bringing even our troubles 
to the point they bless us all the days of my life. And then I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This life, the life to come forever. So, read Psalm 23 in context. In the context of five kingship psalms. Messianic kingship in which he's accomplishing his victories. Yahweh's kingship. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. Read it in the context of the one who suffered but also who has had his kingship united with God's kingship. And so you can say, as one of the paraphrases of Psalm 23 reads, the king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. And as we conclude, we can remember again this question that we were asked at the beginning of this worship. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Your shepherd king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see the richness of your word. Let your spirit apply it to our lives where we have a sense of need that has not yet been met, where we have fearful thoughts of what the future may hold. Give us strong faith to overcome all of these things as we see Jesus as our good shepherd who has given his life for the sheep. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.